Good morning. My name is Pastor Scott, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today, opening God's Word together. As Pastor Chen told you, we are continuing our series in Advent, and this week we are focusing on love. The title that I've given my message this morning is What Christmas Love Always Does. And the passage that we're going to be in, if you want to turn there, is Matthew chapter 2. You can turn there in your Bibles, turn on your electronic devices. Uh, If you didn't come prepared with either of those, you can reach for the Bible in front of you, and that's on page 757, Matthew chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let me just introduce our topic this morning by asking you a question. Did any of you grow up in a family that always seemed to have a goal of being able to say at the end of Christmas, this was the best Christmas ever? And of course, there's no clear criteria for what would make a Christmas the best Christmas ever. Maybe when you're a child, that is, uh, did I get a great present? Or uh, did I get the present that I asked for? Or maybe in my case, did I get more presents than my sister? But when we grow up, uh, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Maybe it's the traditions or the rituals that make it feel like a good Christmas for you. Now, when I was a young boy, the weekend after Thanksgiving, my dad would go to the garage and go up into the rafters of the garage and get out the box that contained the outdoor Christmas lights. And then for the next six hours, he would begin to test his sanctification. You know how that goes, right? The strand of lights is completely tangled. There are several bulbs that are broken while you're getting them out. And there weren't enough replacement bulbs in the box. And so he had to put everything down and run down to the the hardware store and buy more replacement bulbs. And then by the time you get it all hung up and you turn it on, there's that one light that won't turn on. Either it's burned out or it's not screwed in tight enough. And so at least at that point in history, right, the entire strand does not turn on. But that was part of Christmas traditions in our family. Maybe it was in yours too. And let me just say that is the reason why that is not part of my Christmas tradition as an adult. But let me share a story with you from pastor and author John Ortberg. This is from his point of view. He writes, when we had grown up, one year my brother found a house in the mountains of Southern California in Big Bear, and we all stayed there together. It was a little place because we didn't have much money. Nancy and I had two little babies, and we were all in one room. My sister Barbara and her husband had three small children, and all five of them were in another room. My mom and dad were in another small room, and my brother was on a couch in the middle of the house. It was crowded, it was messy, but it was cheap, and we were together. Do you know what it really was? He says, it was a nightmare. The kids couldn't sleep. They cried all night, which meant that nobody slept all night, right? He said his parents got in a big fight And his brother, who had arranged the whole thing, got so fed up that he got in his car and left the rented place and went back to his apartment. He said this was not the best Ortberg Christmas ever. Christmas can be a complex season to navigate. There's all the busyness and all the running around. There's the office parties, which are then followed by the family obligations. And then you have the financial aspect, right? 
Will we be able to pay off this year's presents before Christmas comes next year? So it leaves us wondering, what would it take for this year to be the best Christmas ever? And how would we even know? What is the standard? I want to take us to Scripture this morning and the story of Christmas. I want us to see what was behind Christmas in the Bible, because here is the secret that made that first Christmas great and what can make it great again for us, and that is love. These are the first words that tell of the love that would launch Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here's why that verse is so central. What made the first Christmas great to God is what God got to do. God so loved the world that he gave. Giving is what love does. Giving is how love expresses itself. Giving is the heart of love, and therefore giving is the heart of God. You need to understand that God is not a taker. God is a giver. In the ancient world, there were myths and stories about the gods, lowercase g gods, who created human beings to be slaves because those gods were takers. Then we learn about the people of Israel in the book of Genesis, and we learn of a God who is so generous that he gave, he created with beauty, and then he says, now enjoy what I made for you. God has been giving from the beginning. Let me share with you a verse from James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The key word in that passage is the word every. Not just some of the gifts, but every gift. When you start to think about this, it will change the way that you think about and feel towards our giving God. Now, as most of you know, or many of you know, I'm from Southern California. And among other things, California's coast is known for great surfing. I was familiar in places in SoCal like the Wedge in Newport Beach and the Stacks in Huntington Beach. But there are also good places to surf in Northern California. And one of the best locations is at Half Moon Bay, a place called Mavericks. Mavericks is one of the ultimate surfing places in the world. It's almost a half mile long off the shore of Half Moon Bay. And normally, it's quite placid. But every once in a while, in the right conditions, a big surf will kick up. And then surfers from all over the world, from uh, Hawaii to South Africa, will come and descend on this little sleepy town. And those walls of water can reach 40 feet high. That's four stories. That's quite a wave, isn't it? Well, I heard about the story of this one surfer who would come during one of these great surfing conditions, but he got thrown off his board and he was pinned under the water by a wave. And then another wave came and pinned him down even further. And the result of that is that one of his eardrums was punctured. And he got out of the water, but he just could not bring himself to leave the beach because he was enjoying watching the other surfers surf. He said, we are the luckiest creatures in the history of the universe to get this. Let me ask you, 
Where did those waves come from? They aren't just the product of a mechanical universe. They aren't random. I mean, you have to picture God in heaven saying, you like that wave? Here's another one. God owns the waves. He owns the sun and the sky, and he shares it with us because God is a giver, not a taker. God's generosity isn't just lavish. It's not just creative. It is continuous, it is ceaseless, and it is unstoppable. This is one of my favorite passages from the book of Lamentations. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every morning, God is saying, did you like that sunrise yesterday? Here's another one. Here's good-tasting food for your body. Here's air for your lungs and beauty for your eyes. Here's music for your ears. Here is strength for your needs. Here are friends for your heart and purpose for your day. All the time, God is giving, giving, giving. And what made the first Christmas the best is that God finally got to give His best gift of all. It's like He had been giving and giving and giving from the beginning of creation, but He had this one gift that He had been saving up for all those years. And when He gave Jesus, God outgave Himself. He set a new record for compassion and for generosity. God was so excited about this gift that he just couldn't keep quiet about it. He had to fill the sky with angels, singing and declaring this ultimate gift. And it's a gift that continues to give long after that first Christmas. Now, speaking of gifts that continue to give, let me share with you a story that I read about in a place not too far from us, in Yellow Springs, Ohio. People are still receiving Christmas presents from a former slave named Wheeling Gaunt, who was born in 1812 and died in 1894. Just before he died, he deeded nine acres of land at the south edge of the village to the town of Yellow Springs, the proceeds of which were to buy perpetual Christmas gifts for poor widows, which the village continues to do to this day. Ten pounds of flour arrive at the home of every widow in town just in time for holiday baking, thanks to this former slave. And there's even a plaque in town dedicated to him, and it says, Not what you get, but what you give. When Jesus began his ministry, many people had the wrong idea about the Messiah. They, when they thought about the Messiah, they thought uh, about God taking things. Let me give you an example. They thought that he was going to come and take away the power that the Roman Empire had over them. They thought that he would take control away from Herod. They thought that he would take vengeance on their enemies. So Jesus didn't let them know right away that he was the Messiah until he could re-educate them about who the Messiah was. And that sometimes when you're reading the gospel, you'll, you'll read about Jesus healing somebody miraculously, and then he says, but don't tell anybody about this. Jesus, when he was born, God the Father was so excited. Like he had been anticipating this moment year after year and century after century, millennium after millennium. 
And what made the first Christmas so great was that God finally got to give the best gift of all. He got to give the gift of a Savior to people who needed it the most. And who are the people that need it the most? Let's just be blunt. It's sinners, right? And who are sinners? Okay, turn to the person next to you and look at them. That's a sinner. But you know what? They're looking back at you, right? Because you're a sinner. And you're all looking at me because I'm a sinner. We all need this Savior. You've heard it said that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Here's a question for you. What's the worst Christmas present you ever got? I'm not talking about a white elephant gift, but something that was actually meant to be a real gift. Well, Time Magazine ran a story a few years ago that talked about some of the worst gifts that people had received. One woman reader shared that for years her mother-in-law had bought the other daughter-in-law one of those expensive perfume or makeup kits. And you know that little throwaway gift that comes with it? That's what she gave this woman every year. Another reader shared how they were given a manila file folder for Christmas. Nothing inside of it, just the file folder. But that was actually generous compared to one reader whose husband always tells her, things will always be cheaper in the after-Christmas sales. And then he never actually gave her anything. He just says, I owe you one. Well, let me tell you about a gift, not a Christmas gift, but a gift that Cindy and I received actually for our wedding. Now, first of all, let me tell you that we didn't open our presents until we got back from our honeymoon. And so we were opening these gifts, and one of our friends had given us an orange juice squeezer. Nothing wrong with that gift, except that they had packed the box full of oranges. By the time we opened it, we opened it to a bunch of rotten oranges. (laughs) We all know a bad gift at Christmas when we see it. And it's not really the gift itself that makes it bad. It's, it's the giver's attitude that makes it really bad. If a giver has an attitude of thoughtfulness and care, then even a bad gift really isn't so bad. Let me show you how that's true. How many of you as parents have received kind of a shabby gift from one of your children when they were little and you've treasured it ever since? It's because they loved you enough to either uh, make it for you or maybe go to the dollar store or maybe one of those Christmas stores that they have at school, and they bought it for you because they love you. So if a giver has a gift of insincerity or apathy, no matter <clears throat> what they give, that gift is not going to be a good Christmas gift. So with all the gifts that we're going to be giving this year, how can we be a good giver? Or let me put it a different way. How can you and I be the real gift beyond what we wrap and put under the tree? Well, thoughtfulness certainly goes a long way. And sincerity is important. Generosity is key. And when I say that, I'm not talking that you have to spend a lot of money because we all remember the story of the widow's might, right? It's not what you give, but it's how much you're putting into it. And definitely love should be behind all of it. So how can we be that kind of giver? Ironically, the answer lies in looking back to the first Christmas to those who actually gave gifts. It was the Magi, also known as the wise men, who brought gifts to Mary and Joseph upon the birth of Jesus. 
It's ironic that they would be the ones teaching us because the Magi weren't even Jewish to whom the Messiah had been promised. Those men were a combination of wise men and astrologists and priests who resided in Persia. They looked to the night sky to make their astrological predictions, and they were known for interpreting dreams and and unlocking uh, mysteries about the future. And their predictions and interpretations could actually make or break a, a ruler in Persia. But the Bible always censured what astrologists practiced because they were dabbling in what should have been left to God, predicting the future. Therefore, the Jews looked on stargazers with suspicion. So in the most anticipated and promised event in Jewish history, with the coming of the Messiah, it's ironic that the foreign astrologers would show up. And on top of that, that they were remembered for being givers at the first Christmas. And they were a gift, not just because they gave, but because of the kind of givers that they were. So let's now look at our passage here in Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin at verse 1 and read through verse 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them down to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it uh, came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is really an amazing story and one that maybe we've become a little bit too accustomed to in order to appreciate how profound it is. Imagine being in Jerusalem at this time. Now, normally Jerusalem is kind of uh, run-of-the-mill life going on, but then out of nowhere comes this huge entourage with people dressed much differently than they dressed. It's like a parade of camels and people and everything that goes along with it, and it stirred up the whole city. Normally, when there isn't a religious feast going on, this is kind of a sleepy town, but this strange group from the east has stirred things up. Then out of this entourage steps some rather curious-looking men. Now, I know that we sing songs, you know, We Three Kings, 
and we see scenes of three wise men, but we really don't know how many wise men they were. We only know that there's more than one because it's a plural word that's used, right? Wise men. But it could be quite a few more. The number three has been arrived at because there were three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. In any case, there is this group of wise men who enter Herod's palace. And of course, Herod welcomes them, first of all, because he's a politically shrewd leader with Rome, who was the ruling power at that time. And he knows how respected these wise men outside of Israel, how respected they are. And the only reason that Herod is even associated with the Jews in the first place, because he's not Jewish by birth, is because his grandfather converted his family to Judaism to gain power in Israel as a Roman-appointed governor. Now, this would not be like they, they became Jewish themselves. It might be like somebody you know who marries into a, a certain religious family and they convert to that religion in order to keep peace in the family, not because they intend to become of that religion. So the Magi tell Herod that they've come to welcome the newest king. Now, I'm sure that got his ears perked up a little bit. They know this new king has been born king over Israel by virtue of his birth from a royal line, which insinuates that Herod is not from a royal line, which he was not. He had ascended through power and scheming. These wise men then share that they know all of this because when they were in the east, they saw a new star in the sky. And the connection of a new star and a new king may elude our thinking, but it didn't elude their thinking in those days. It was a very common connection to be made. In fact, for you history buffs, a first century Roman historian known by the name Tacitus said during the reign of Nero, that the general belief is that a comet means a change of emperor. So the wise men saw this new star, and so they, they automatically conclude there must be a new king as well. And perhaps someone may have told them what was recorded in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures in Numbers chapter 24, 17, a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. In other words, a ruler will rise out of Israel. The wise men had noticed what no one in Israel was noticing, the birth of a new king, the birth of God's historically unique and anointed king who would rescue his people, the king that they had all been waiting for for all of these years. But since that new star appeared, that also meant that nothing but trouble would happen for the current king because it meant that he was going to be replaced. That's why Herod reacted the way that he did. He didn't want to give up his throne to anyone, not even to God's anointed messianic king. So Herod schemes to kill this rival to his throne. But first he needs to find out the exact location of this king. Now he doesn't know the scriptures very well, so he calls on his scribes to come and point him to the location. And they quickly zero in on Bethlehem using a text from the prophet Micah. With the location now pinpointed, he needs to learn uh, who the actual child is so that he can eliminate this rival. He devises a scheme to make the wise men his unknowing spies. 
First, he, he finds out the timing of the star so that he'll know approximately the age of the child. And then he sends them on their way to find this child with the instructions, come back so that I can then go and worship this new king. So instead of Herod or any other Jewish scribes going to find God's promised Messiah, these wise men, foreigners, are sent as the official welcoming team. Just think about how weird that is. These Jewish rulers, the leading Jewish scribes and teachers, aren't the first dignitaries welcoming their God-anointed king. It's a bunch of foreigners who aren't even Jewish. But the wise men buy Herod's story, and they go to Jerusalem to find the child. They follow the star until it stops over the house where Jesus was, not a stable that he was born in. Now this, along with what Herod does later in killing all of the male children under two years, should signal to us that Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger, but he has grown as much as two years at this point. When these wise men see the child Jesus, they bow in respect of the new king. And then in keeping with that homage, they give gifts fitting for a king. Gold, which shows the Christ child's kingly status. Frankincense for his divinity. And myrrh for the anointing at his sacrificial death. You might think that foreigners being the first visitors would discount Jesus being God's Messiah, because outsiders can't really be welcoming party, be the welcoming party for an insider's king, right? But from, far from discounting it, this only served to further confirm Jesus as the Messiah. The wise men visit looked back to scriptures surrounding the coming of the, the Messiah. These were well known to the Jewish people. Let me just share two of these with you. There is Psalm from Psalm 72, where we read, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. All of these are foreign countries. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And then from Isaiah, it says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Then as quickly as these wise men came, they departed because God gave them this vision while they were dreaming. Don't go back and tell Herod because he does not have good plans in store for the Messiah. And that's the last time we ever hear or see of them again. But did you catch it? Did you catch what set the wise men apart? Something that nobody else was doing that enabled them to be the gift at Christmas. The wise men were actually looking. That's the surprise of this story. It's the word see. The wise men see the star in verse 2. And once the wise men leave Herod in Jerusalem, they again see that star and follow it until it points them to where Jesus was in verse 9. And when they see that star stop over the place where Jesus is, they rejoice, recorded in verse 10. And then they see the child with Mary in verse 11, and they rejoice again. 
The wise men are repeatedly seen while nobody else even notices the most pivotal point in history. That's the surprise. If you were a betting person, who are the odds-on favorites to be actually looking for the birth of God's promised Messiah? Well, the top bet would probably be the scribes and the teachers who knew the Scriptures and taught them to others. They knew where the Messiah would be born to the point where Herod could ask them and they could immediately tell him. So why aren't they camped out in Bethlehem? And even if they didn't want to live in a podunk city like Bethlehem, why aren't they scanning all the male births in Bethlehem looking for the Messiah? We don't know, but for some reason they aren't. Another good bet would be Herod. I mean, he's the one with power to lose should the Messiah show up, which he now knows about. Herod is infamous for his insane grip on his power. We know from history that Herod killed his sons and even his favorite wife, why he had some that weren't his favorites, I'm not sure. But he killed them when he feared they were trying to grab his power. Did you know that Caesar Augustus once remarked that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son? So with that much paranoia to keep his power, why wasn't Herod looking for the Messiah, the one who would be a rival to him? Why is this the first time he even bothers with it? And if he didn't want to bother with it, why didn't he make it somebody's job in his cabinet to keep tabs on this? We don't know, but he wasn't looking. The long shot in this whole story for looking and seeing is the wise men. They had no stake in Israel having a king. They had nothing to gain and nothing to lose in a new king in Israel. But they were the only ones looking for the Messiah in this story. This isn't like the wise men were able to see something that nobody else was able to see. It's that the wise men were actually looking while no one else was. The Messiah went unnoticed in this story to everyone who should have seen him because they weren't looking. With the exception of these unlikely wise men who were looking and saw the star leading to Jesus as the true king who had come, Looking is what separated the wise men from everyone else in this story, and it's what allowed them to respond to God. Looking is what separates those who can respond to God from those who don't respond to Him, because they can actually see how God is moving. Looking is what enables us to see so we can be a gift at Christmas. The response of the wise men compels us to ask, Are we looking so that we can see what God is up to? Are we looking around us so that we can see what opportunities God is opening up for us? In our better moments, we do see God at work. But in all honesty, far too often we are oblivious. Is it busyness? Is it weariness? Distractions? Too many obligations? Whatever the reason, we fail to look for God at work. But there's good, no, good news for us. God is always working. So all we have to do is stop and stand back and look. At this time of year, what might we, what might we see? Might we see somebody who is seeking? Or someone who desperately needs to hear some good news? 
Let me back up and ask you, what is the greatest gift you can give anyone this year? Hope? Good news? The gift of peace with God? This is what we need to be looking for. Opportunities to share the good news of Jesus coming to earth to reconcile us as sinful people to a holy God. Looking enables us to see so that we can be a gift at Christmas. Don't be fooled. This is not about adding something good to our Christmas season. This isn't about another Christmas obligation. This isn't about mustering up more Christmas spirit. This is about seeing opportunities to give the greatest gift ever, the gift first given by God to his creation. It's only possible if we embrace Jesus as the king, our king, whose throne was a manger and whose scepter was a cross. Only then will we have a Christmas that is about more than activities and decorations and presents, or even about just getting through the season. That's when we will have a Christmas where we re-coronate Jesus as king in our hearts, as the God who has come to be with us and to die for us on a cross in order to reconcile us with God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for keeping these stories in Scripture and for protecting Scripture for all of these centuries, these millennium, so that we can be reminded that Christmas is not about movies or decorations or even about family. Christmas is about your gift to us and a gift that we don't want to hoard and keep to ourselves, but to share with others who desperately need hope and good news and to be reconciled to a God who loves them. Father, give us those eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.